Well, good morning. I hope that is your heart's desire this morning, to glorify His name. I pray that we would continue to worship the Lord as we turn to His Word. Would you open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1? going to start reading in verse 3 and work our way down to verse 11. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you all are partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more, with knowledge in all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Father, who is sufficient for these things? Father, may our wills be aligned with your will. Would you declare your name to be great? Be holy, reverenced. We ask, Spirit of God, that you would come, be our teacher, that you would open our eyes of our understanding to your truth, that we, seeing, may be transformed, that you may receive glory, and our joy be full. Father, we turn to you, we look to you to do now what only you can do. Make your name great. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a lot of common interest. Um, I, titled, I uh, labeled or titled the, uh, the sermon, Partnerships That Last. Partnerships That Last. And what I mean by that uh, is there's a lot of common interest with people get together, right? I mean, uh, you just do a Google search on clubs and you'll have this plethora of people joining together. There's diet clubs and food clubs and fitness clubs and there's even a Toastmaster International Club that people gather together so they can learn to speak better in, in public. So this public speaking club um, and even the title of that was Living a, How to Build a Better You. So. In all of those, it's really communicating to us that people want to be in community. And so what they've found in looking for community is people who have like interests that they have. Well, we would not call the church a club. We would not call it a club. We would not call it a social gathering because something has happened to us that makes people who are not only looking for their own interest, right? A club that someone goes to means I have an interest in this, and so I want to join with you because you have the common interest that I do. 
But if you look around this room, you'll notice that if all of us was going to decide upon a restaurant today, I don't think any of us could all come together on one agreement. So that's not where we're all looking for as common people with just that one same interest, right? We're gathered with various interests, but underneath one common name. And so what is brought us together is not just our interest in Jesus, but actually a relationship has developed. And so if we're looking for partnerships that will last, there has to be something that will keep us together. And what Paul says and I, from this passage, we see it is the gospel that is the glue that keeps us together. And so we was going to say that this church is, is, was birthed by this gospel and that the gospel being the central aim of this church will create partnerships that will last. So as Paul is remembering, as we go into our passage here, is that Paul is remembering this church. Now you can read about how this church comes into conception in Acts chapter 16. You remember that it is God, uh, they, there's, the, there's a vision that Paul gets, this Macedonian call where he goes into Macedonia. Philippi is in that Roman colony there and he goes to a place uh, where women are gathered together and it says that the Lord opens the heart of Lydia to pay attention to the things that Paul had said and the church is birthed out of that interaction. It says the Lord opened her heart to that. So Paul is in efforts to bringing about this gospel, this furtherance of God's kingdom. The Lord opens up Lydia's heart and then they start gathering and meeting into her house. That's how the church is birthed. Um, and so he's thinking about this. That's been probably around 10 years. Philippians is wrote about that event. So the conception of the, that Philippi, the church of Philippi, is about 10 years ago when this letter is now written to them. And so Paul is wanting to remind them of his and, and be thankful to the, wants to express his thankfulness for their partnership with him. And that's where he starts off right in verse three he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. So every time he calls them to account, every time he remembers them, Paul says that thankfulness arises in his heart. There's a thankfulness that goes to God because he recognizes it is God who has worked in these individuals. And so he says, I want you to know that I thank God for you. I thank God for you in every remembrance of you, and I continue to pray for you, and my prayer results in joy. Is there a joyful thanksgiving that swells in my heart when I remember you? Every time I call to mind what your partnership with me is, I am elated and thankful to God for you. And then he says in verse 5, he says, because your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, the word here, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, this partnership is the Greek word kononia. So there's a lot of, that also is translated in the scriptures, fellowship. So this fellowship has developed because of this gospel. So 10 years, they have been faithfully partnering with Paul in this commitment. 10 years is a long time to stay associated to a, anything, right? That's a decade of your involvement. Um, and what he says in this partnership from the first day until now, we return to chapter 4, you could think about that this means financial investment. 
Well, that might be the case, and we can read that in chapter 4, verse 14. He says, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. My trouble. That word share is the same word that's translated partnership back in verse 5. So that word partnership in verse 5 is the same word that it says in verse 14, that you share in my trouble. Paul will tell us that he is imprisonment, and so if you know this, um, when you were incarcerated in that point in time, the government did not feed you, so it was your friends and your family that you were uh, relying upon to sustain your life. And he says that you shared in my trouble. Um, what he means in verse 15, he says, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership, there it is again, with me and giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs. Once again, Thessalonica was the next city that Paul went to in Acts chapter 16, Acts 17. He goes into Thessalonica and he sent, this church is sending help for his needs. Verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And so there is this idea of this partnership, meaning this financial investment. And so there's a component of it that this church has entered into partnering with Paul in financial support. But I think it means more than that. And I think what Paul is being thankful for is not just their financial investment, but of their participation in the gospel themselves. They are bold to proclaim this word. They are bold to share in the sufferings that is a result of them following Christ. And he is, he is adding to this thankful joy that they are participants in it. And so what I would say to you is that for you to, to be involved in partnering with the gospel is first that the gospel has to be believed. You're not going to give what you do not have. And so if you're the, the involvement, it is affected upon you, and therefore it has caused you to support others in this advancement. So Paul says, every time I think of you, I'm thankful to God for you. I'm thankful to God that you believe this gospel that my labor among you was in vain, but you're believing. And not only have you believed initially, but you continue to believe. The mark of a believer is not just a one-time decision, but it is a continuation of this, this involvement in the things of God. It's not a one-time choice. It is a lifetime of faithfulness to God. That's the mark of this believer. And it's the gospel that has become the core and the central thing that Paul is thankful for. And let's, look what he says. It says, think about this. He says, from the first day until now. So from the past to the present, this gospel fellowship we've enjoyed together with. We've enjoyed God's working in us from the first day until now. But Paul doesn't stop with the present. He continues this and he says, and I'm sure of this, that he will bring, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So think about that. So it's the first day until now. And then he says, from now to the end. I'm confident that God started this work in Acts chapter 16. And I am confident 
that God will finish this work on the day of Jesus Christ. So there's a future in mind here. Notice it says that He who began a good work in you. The gospel is not something that only affects exterior, but it is something that gets inside of you. There is a change that occurs in our affections, in our attitudes, in our attention. And so this has affected them, and now they've partnered with him, and, God, and he is thankful to God that he will continue this work in them. Notice that it says, at the day of Jesus Christ. What does he mean by the day of Jesus Christ? Well, I think it's, he's talking eschatological, uh, meaning the things of end times. And if you look at uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, he says, this is the day of Christ, right? This is the evidence, I'm in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, this is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. Some indeed God considers it just to replay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to those who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. So this day is a day of destruction and it is also a day of deliverance. Deliverance for those who God has counted worthy to suffer for that. Now, Paul's usual thing is in the thanksgiving prayer. Notice this, this is thankfulness, and it is Paul's prayer for them. And usually in the introduction of epistles, that Paul's going to be introducing themes in the letters that he is addressing there. And so what that means is, is that in the text of 3 through 11, there is a development and introduction of themes that will carry through the book of Philippians. And so what he's saying is that I am sure of this, that he began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He's introducing them to this idea that suffering and deliverance happens in the end. But the call and the theme of this letter is Paul's this sacrificial service that existed in the life of the Philippian church and is being manifested in their care for Paul and Paul's desire that this continual sacrificial service continues. And so, when he says this day of Jesus Christ is a day of suffering, he's, he introduces that theme in chapter 1, but he also goes back to verse 27, uh, chapter 1, verse 27, and he picks it back up again. And here it says in Chapter 1, verse 27 says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction. You ever notice, <coughs> have you ever paid attention to what the scripture is saying here? It's saying 
that your unflinching courage in the face of opposition is a sign to an unbeliever. It's a sign of what? It's a sign that God has granted you salvation. It's a sign that you belong to God. It says, courage in the face of opposition, the ones who are persecuting you, <coughs> when you stand, not fearing and unflinching, it says, it is a clear sign to them of their impending judgment, that the day of Christ is coming and they understand that their, their destruction, it's a clear sign to them that destruction is coming upon them by your unwillingness to fear and cower, but remain bold in their face. Not this abrasive jerkiness, but just this unflinching, not scared, because God has granted me the grace to stand in the face of it. But it says that it's doing something to them, and it's doing something to you. It says it's a clear sign to you of your salvation. If you can stand in the midst of persecution and suffering and not fear, it is a sign that you have been delivered, and this from God. Look at verse 29. It says, For it has been, that word granted means graciously given. For it has been graciously given to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I have. So you see that Paul's asking them to continue in this fight, continue in your involvement in these things. And he says, you're already doing that. Verse 7, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 7, it says, it's right for me to feel this way. Rightness. Now, it's, he might be addressing this need of how they are to relate to one another. Notice in this passage how many times he says, for you all. See, there's a problem that exists in the Philippian church that there's a, there is things inside of the church that is fighting against its unity. But Paul is making it clear through this passage that it's for every one of you. Look at verse 3, he says, in every prayer of mine, for you all. Then he says, it's verse 7, he says, it's right for me to feel this way about you all. And then, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace in my imprisonments. Uh, verse 8, for God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And so he keeps reminding them that it's not for the select few or the popular, it's for every one of them. He is thankful for every one of them. Listen, and, and this is Paul's way of introducing these themes, especially when he goes into chapter 2, when he wants them to know is you can't do anything from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Don't look on your own interests, but also the interests of of others, And so there's this allness that Paul is addressing. All of you, I thank God for all of you. There's not a select few or a hierarchy or just a select people that I'm really, it's not just you, Lydia. I'm thankful for all of you. And so he's addressing that and he says, it's right for me to feel this way. Feel this way, it's not so much the emotions, that word for feel is also the word for mind. Um, it's the same word that he says in chapter 2. He says, uh, complete my joy by being of the same mind. 
uh, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. The word feel, translated there in verse 6, is also, it says in uh, chapter 2, it says, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. And so it's not just the emotions that Paul is feeling here. He's saying that it is right for me to have you at the center of my being, of my core of who I am. This is a right way for me to think about you. This is a right way for me to value you. Why, Paul? Because I hold you in my heart. This is not just rote prayer. This is not just introduction. This is Paul's affection for these believers because God is at work in them and they have partnered alongside of Paul. He's deeply involved emotionally and spiritually and mentally. He thinks of them and he says, it's right for me to hold you because I hold you in my heart. Why? For you all are partakers with me of grace. And when I introduced you to that in chapter 2 where it says, this is a gracious gift to you to not only believe on him but also suffer for his sake. Paul is saying, you're partakers with me in this grace. And he says the same thing in that chapter 4. He says, you share in my trouble. You participate with me in my trouble. Uh, you are partakers with me of this grace. It is a gracious gift to you, believer, to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. It's a gift. That's really adverse to how we think about suffering. And yet, that's what the word says. It's given to you. You think about, think about Peter, right? Think about Peter in the New Testament. Think about Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost, right? 3,000 people are, are saved, right? And with women and children, it could be estimated 20,000, 30,000 people in this church. Popularity exploding, right? Peter is, and John, people are trying to crouch in their shadows that they might be healed. There's this popularity about them. And then what happens? The religious leaders get upset about it, and they beat them. They tell him, don't ever speak of this name again. And you would think that Peter would say, well, that was nice. I guess I'm doing something wrong because it's not going well for me anymore. And that's not how they respond at all. They rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer for that name. Jesus has promised this pathway of blessedness is through the road of suffering it's gracious to you maybe the reason we're not suffering is because god's not given us that gift yet and hence our love is cold and our unity is hindered maybe so should we pray for suffering no what you should and i should do is desire to partnership in this gospel. That we would fellowship, that we'd make it the core of how we relate to one another. That it would call us to live sacrificially and in community with one another. And so much so that God would be honored by our fellowship and that he would declare his name great and that suffering might result from those because the enemy does not like our unity. And just like the temptations that are facing this church, there are temptations that are facing 
the Philippian church is facing this church as well. Are there areas of temptation where we could fight and bicker with one another and put our own personal interests above God's? Absolutely. It happened in this church with Judea and Syntyche in chapter 4. He addresses that. So there's this undercurrent that's going on because they're how do they know they will continue? It's because God's at work in them. How do you know we'll continue? Because God's at work in us. That's our confidence, not in ourselves, but in Him. It says, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you're all partakers with me of this grace, right? Of the grace. He says, in my imprisonment, in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. I walked you through that passage in 27 saying that it's a sign to them. So you're confirming the gospel by your belief in it, your trust in it. You're confirming the truthfulness of it as it's being lived out in your lives in community. Um, so it's in that. It says you're partaking with me. Every one of you are in this involvement. Verse 8, for God is my witness. God is, Paul is calling God to witness of how he have, yearns with affection for them all. How do partnerships last? How do partnerships continue on? Well, there's an affection for Jesus. There's an affection for Christ, so much so that it spills over and abounds to all those that Jesus loves. The way partnerships exist is because love exists. Love exists in us for God and for others. And so we partner with one another, and love is the motivating aspect of why we continue in it. And we wonder, we think about how did Christ love us? Romans 5, 8, God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus' love, and he'll talk about this in chapter 2, is the sacrificial giving of himself so that you can be saved and for the glory of God's great name. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's our banner. That's the name which we gather under. And it makes people like Epaphroditus in chapter 2, verse 25. He says, I think it's necessary, Paul's saying this, to send Epaphroditus back. He's my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. Verse 26, for he's been longing for you all in distress because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I have sorrow upon sorrow. Verse 28, I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I might be less anxious. Listen to verse 29. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the, for the work of Christ, 
risking his life to complete that was lacking in your service to me. Honor goes to people like Epaphroditus who put their lives at risk for gospel partnerships. And he's saying, imitate these people. Imitate them. That's what it means in this partakers of me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. What does it look like? It's looking like we don't count ourselves as anything, but yet God is everything, and this gospel must go forth, even at the risk of our very own lives. That's the affection. The affection for Paul was because of the affection of Christ. This church loved Paul because it first loved Jesus. Paul first come to know the love of God and therefore spread that love and enjoyed the reciprocation of that love from this church. And Paul says, I pray for you. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance and every prayer of mine for you all, but he doesn't tell them especially what he is praying about. Well, he shares with us what his prayers are for them. In verse 9, he says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. I don't think this is really a rebuke to them to say that love doesn't exist. He's just asking that love to continue to grow, that it would abound, that it would overflow, that it would cher- it would just lavish, right? It's the same word that's used in uh, in, in Ephesians that God's grace was lavished upon us and he, he's asking that God would enable their love to abound to overflow notice that it is God's it is petitioning God that your love may abound it's not dependent upon the people he's not saying hey grow in love he's not saying hey do better within the aspect in the area of love He's asking God to infect their hearts that love may be the result and that it would overflow more and more. Now, it's interesting to note that he says that this love will grow with knowledge and insight. Look what he says. He says in your prayer, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Knowledge, growing in the area of knowledge, has the ability to increase in love. What do I mean by that? The more we know God, the more we come to understand God, the more that God reveals himself to us. Affections, listen, if we're only growing in knowledge and not love, then knowledge is not right. That's the wrong kind of knowledge. That kind of knowledge produces pride in us. But if we grow as God reveals himself to us in a right way, that knowledge affects us, and it starts to increase our affections for Jesus. And so he's saying, I want you to know God so much more in such a way that it increases your love for God. He doesn't say, he doesn't create an object for this love. I think that's intentional. I think it's not just, I want you to increase your love for God and love for people because I think those two things are the same thing. Jesus says it that way. What is the greatest command? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So loving God equates results in loving people 
who are made in the image of God. And so he's saying, your knowledge, listen, knowledge of who God is increases love for God if it's knowledge rightly, if it's spirit-induced, revealed knowledge. It increases love for God. And so this love for God also increases this, it says, in all discernment. So in practical matters, there's areas of our church life that we have to grow in, in like Romans chapter 15. You think about Romans 15, about using our freedoms and those who are not quite yet there yet, right? Those who are weaker in faith, meaning um, in that context, it has food that are uh, sacrificed to idols. It says, don't use your freedom to make your brother stumble. And so this discernment is in the areas of practical matters where we need to grow in our love for one another. What that means is, is that what Paul's saying here, and I think he's introducing this, is that don't be so motivated by your own self-interest. I think he introduces that in chapter 2 where he says, let others, right? Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Don't be so dominated by self-interest. And I think that's the point that he's making here in this prayer is that practical matters, you're growing in that and love abounds in that. It is right to sacrifice your right in, in regard to loving another person. It's right. It's good. It promotes unity. You have the right to, to push your rights towards someone, but even says to the church of Corinth, why not just to defraud yourself? Why are you taking legal matters to the court? Can you not judge among yourself? Why not just be defrauded by your brother? Why don't you just give up your rights for the sake of Jesus Christ as he gave up your, his rights for you? Why don't you just sacrifice those? Don't fight for them, but give them up. Yield them to God that love may abound, that love might continue to grow in among us. Notice that it's in these practical matters so that you may approve what is excellent. Paul's prayer is that love would result in them living a life that is excellent. And I think that's the same word that he's saying in 127, just let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. What does it look like for it to be excellent? Moral excellence. So it's not just this knowledge in practical matters that elevates our thoughts and our, 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 our theology, but it works itself out in our lives. Knowledge that does not affect actions is not truly known. It's not really believed. And so he's saying that it results in this purity and blamelessness for the day of Christ. There it is again, right? God will perfect you. God will complete what is, he has started in you until the day of Jesus Christ. And then he's asking that they would continue to live in such a way that they long for this day of Christ and be ready, be looking forward to it. And this results in being filled with the fruit of righteousness, fruit of righteousness that results in trust for God, right? That's the point of that. He talks about that in chapter 2, that this righteousness that comes through faith, this faith in God, in the gospel, has resulted in their righteousness. And because of that, fruit results. 
They're filled with this fruit that is enabled by the Spirit as they put their confidence in Christ alone. As they continue that Christ, um, continue that faith in Christ, then the Spirit of God produces that fruit, and it's full, and it results in what? Glory and praise of God. Same thing Jesus says when he says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. A result of God working in us, and that's what he says. He says, um, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God desires fruit to be developed in our lives so that he receives glory and praise. And that should be the motivating factor for us as well. This is Paul's prayer for this church. How does this prayer help us in understanding partnerships that last? I haven't been at this church yet quite 10 years. I think we've been here about nine. Nine years. And I've seen some come and I've seen some go. The reason I think they don't continue with us all is because something else was at the center. I think those who come understand that there's a core here, most, not all. The gospel has become essential, non-negotiable. It's the center of who we are. We are a people formed by this gospel, and we are people who are propagating, proclaiming Christ. Just like that's the emphasis. I mean, you think about in this chapter how many times Paul mentions the word gospel or refers to it in the first chapter alone. It's essential to Paul. He says this affection for these believers is because they share in the same aim. They devote their money and their time and their energy to this. It has become a way of life. That's why he says, let your manner of life, all of your life, be related back to this gospel. So what's going to change, what's going to shape our attitudes, right? Attitude is what's going to keep us partnering with together. What What is going to help us to develop this thankfulness and joy to God for others? Is it not speaking the truth to one another? Is it not loving one another in such a way that we continue to speak the truth to one another? That we walk in the same fellowship with one another? What's going to devote our attention? What's going to take, what is it, what's it going to, break forth into helping us continue to continue to push all our efforts and energy and time and resources. What calls? What's the pinnacle of it all? What's the point of it all? It's this gospel. It's the gospel of our Lord. There's nothing else higher. It's not a club for food or diet exercise God is at the center of this fellowship and if your attention is being diverted it's because we've got off center 
what's going to affect our affections towards one another? What is going to transform us and continue to transform us if it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ? It continues. It's not just, I know it. I don't think we ever fully know it. I think we fully understand the implications of it. But as it continues to break and the Spirit enables us to understand it, it increases our affections for it. It's the fuel that fans the flames of devotion to God as we consider it, as we meditate upon it. What will cause the urgency that we would send out people for the sake of that name? Is it not the day of Jesus Christ? Is it not the impending destruction of all those who do not know God? We are motivated for the sake of his name. And so we send, this church sends, it's a sending church. It will, it will always be a sending church partnering with others as the gospel is the center of its fellowship, of its unity, of its devotion. That's my prayer. Just like Paul is praying for this church of Philippi, so I am praying for my own heart and for all of our hearts that our love would abound more and more with knowledge. That's why we gather, open this book, declare what God says so that you would open our understanding to who He is and what He's done that it would increase our affection for Him and for one another. Discernment, learning how to live with one another, broken people together seeking one aim, one goal to make Him known. Excellency, calling people to come beside you, speak those things into your life. It will call you to repentance and encourage you when you're downtrodden. Why? That you might press on to make Him known. This is what's going to continue to unite and be the core of how a partnership to last. This must be the center of our fellowship. And if we do, God is glorified. God is praised by how we live. Let's pray.